Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Tim Wyatt, the digital editor. This week we're posting an extended interview with the Reverend Steve Chalk, a well-known evangelical Baptist pastor and campaigner who made waves four years ago when he came out in favour of the church affirming same-sex relationships. The row sparked by his decision eventually led to his charity, Oasis, being thrown out of the Evangelical Alliance. Last week, Mr Chalk re-entered the fray with a contentious video which argued that archaeological discoveries of graphic ancient Roman erotica in Pompeii and elsewhere reinforced his case. He suggested that the New Testament verses which appear to condemn homosexual activity as sinful are actually attacking exploitative and abusive sexual practices which were rife in the Greco-Roman world Paul was writing into. I sat down with him this week to find out exactly why he thought sexually explicit 2,000-year-old paintings and statues should prompt today's church to think again on LGBT issues. Um, Steve, for those who haven't yet seen seen the video, could you kind of sum up the argument you make in perhaps one minute or less? Yeah, it's simply that the three clubber passages, as they're called, in the New Testament that are used to condemn um, any LGBT sexual activity or relationship, or even, in some churches, an orientation towards a sexuality other than heterosexuality, I think that they've been misunderstood and they've been abused, often out of ignorance, sometimes probably out of prejudice, but I think that any uh, deeper digging into the context into which Paul was writing and the New Testament more generally was written reveals to us that these passages are about something else altogether and can't be used in the discussion about the legitimacy of LGBT relationships at all. Why did you decide to address this topic in particular? The reason I made the video is simply because we uh, did a teaching course on Sunday mornings in our Sunday morning and Sunday evening congregations actually around um, Paul's letter to the Romans. A lot of Christians uh, get scared of aspects of Paul. I meet lots of women who feel that Paul is anti-women and so go out of their way to avoid his epistles and his letters. And of course, the LGBT community has ha- has been beaten with the stick of Romans chapter 1, etc, etc. And so I felt for lots of reasons, it was really important to unpack the book of uh, Romans, the letter to the Romans. And I said to the church on the first week, I know that some of you, for various reasons, will feel that these next few weeks are going to be really painful. But actually, I want to present Paul to you as not the person you perhaps think he was at all. He was a fantastically imaginative theologian who, in the light of his understanding of Jesus' death and resurrection, reworked everything he understood about Judaism, everything he understood about God, everything he understood about the role of government and state, and everything he understood about the universe. And we owe him huge amounts, but he's often been wrongly read because he's been read out of context. Some people said to me, you'll never convince us of that. But the truth is, um, they have become avid um, fans of Paul, I think it's fair to say. And then the church said, 
we love the thing about sexuality so much that could could it be turned into a video for us to use in small groups, etc.? And that's how the idea developed. Do you think it's important that this debate around sexuality is held within and between evangelicals in the church as using the same sources of authority, going back to the same Bible passages, rather than simply pushed forward by another tradition, perhaps the liberal wing of the church? I think, um, I, well, I am an evangelical. So for me, um, to take the Bible seriously is the core issue. Um, if I can only arrive at a position by some jiggery-pokery with hermeneutics and the dumping of a few texts here and there, that's not a satisfying thing for, for me as an evangelical. And that's why I address these things in this way. For me, it's important to look at the biblical text or texts um, and to ask myself the question, am I dealing honestly and transparently and openly and well uh, with with these verses and these these letters in this case? I think that applies to everything. And, and one of my feelings is that, sadly, the evangelical community, of which I'm part, loves quoting the Bible rather than reading the Bible. I don't think evangelicals read the Bible as much as they talk about the Bible. And I think often we read it uh, literalistically, which is unhelpful. I, for, for a few years ago, when I, I first um, talked about my support for L, LGBT um, lifelong relationships, um, I was in a debate with um, a leader of... Um, a, a church, not an Anglican church, an, another church, had a PhD in theology. And I began to talk about some of the differences there are between writers in the New Testament. And he looked at me as though I'd gone mad and had abandoned the Bible. And in actual fact, I mean, uh, you know, it was sweet, but I, I, I saw some social media afterwards. I'm not sure I whether I was supposed to see it or not, but he and his friends in his church group were talking about how I was a nice guy, but they weren't sure whether I was a Christian, and I certainly didn't take the Bible seriously. Well, in actual fact, there are differences between writers in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. Um, <clears throat> Um, there are differences between the gospel writers. There are differences in what Paul says in one situation and what he says in another situation. So I think one of our problems for evangelicals is we go, the Bible is the word of God because we feel it's under attack. Um, but we don't dig deeper and think, um, and, and think at a more complex level about what we mean by this being inspired by God. It's a long answer to a short question, but I think it's not just on the LGBT issue, it's on the issue of leadership in the church, of the role of women in the church. The Bible has been abused and misused to deny votes to black people or, or equal access to black people. Very recently it's been used in that way. So I think we, we need to take the Bible more seriously just then reading a skim surface level literal take on everything. In light of that, were you disappointed when the Evangelical Alliance decided to remove Oasis's membership from them? 
uh, as a result of a kind of discussion that grew out of your um, thoughts on, on same-sex relationships? Yeah, I was really uh, disappointed, really disappointed. One, because um, uh, a lot of my friends are, are within the Evangelical Alliance, but two, because nobody wanted to allow a conversation. When I first wrote, a paper which was called A Matter of Integrity, which I published in Christianity magazine and online, I think, well, I reread it the other day, actually, simply because someone had asked me for it, and I thought, well, I'll just see if this, you know, still stacks up. I wrote it before same-sex marriage became a possibility in this country, for instance, so I reread it, and I saw time and time again in that paper, I was saying, look, I'd like to put this question forward. I'd like to ask this question. I, I... I'm scared to ask the question, but I feel I must ask the question because this is the way I'm feeling. I hope this to be is a first comment or a comment in an ongoing discussion. It's certainly not the last word. Um, but it seems that in some forms of evangelicalism, even to ask a question is to be condemned. Um, the Evangelical Alliance actually, uh, in the end, said that they were throwing us out um, they expelling us because on our website we didn't put other points of view. Well, the truth is, if anybody had looked at our website, of course on any website you can always comment. There's always a place to say, well, I think this, I think that, about this video that we've just released. There's loads of comments, pro and anti and questioning on it, and that is the conversation the church should have. So I was sad that the EA stifled conversation and scared everybody else, hmm. I would imagine. How can you stand up and say you support me? Because you might be thrown out too. And that's what I've found, and I have to say, I find the same in the, within Anglicanism. There's a little coffee shop across the road from here. I, it, would be, it would be indiscreet, it would be wrong of me to tell you how many senior Anglicans have sat in that coffee shop and said, I agree with you, Steve, but I can't say. I think things are changing there. Mm. It was quite one of the most striking things about the video was how you, you started with a parental advisory explicit content warning. Um, and when you go on to watch it, you can understand why, because you're dealing with some fairly graphic, erotic art found in Pompeii and other places. Do you think some of prudishness might stop Christians from really grappling with this because it just feels a bit icky, a bit not some stuff we want to talk about in church normally? I think um, I think it might do, but I think that's part of the problem, the dichotomy, the dualism. So, um, you know, I'm old enough to have grown up in an era when um, the Carry On films, do you remember the Carry On films? And there was one called Carry On, Carry On Pompeii or Up Pompeii or something like that. And I, I mean, not that I ever watched it all the way through, but... I, it was all about the debauched nature of life in Roman cities. And of course, at school in history, you learn about the debauched nature of life in Roman cities. And, and so you understand all of that. And then a Christian, an evangelical, reads the Bible and doesn't bring the two worlds together. What Paul is condemning in Romans is debauched sex which abuses and misuses people. Sex which exploits those who are subservient. Uh, he's talking about 
the common practice in Roman cults of the time to use and abuse slaves, gladiators, uh, women, to put them all down and use them as things. Um, and he's talking about the drug-fueled, um, uh, alcohol-fueled orgies that took place across a city like Pompeii that we now know about, but you know, Pompeii's only a little echo of, of Rome, to which Paul's writing. Um, he's talking about that lifestyle. Now that's on display in every city in our country all of the time. It's on display here in London all of the time. So the church is, is given fuel through a right reading of Romans, for instance, or the lists, uh, the two lists in, in 1 Corinthians and in Timothy, is given good fuel for engagement with this terrible lifestyle that, that many young people and other people are caught up in, which dehumanises them and puts their mental health and their physical health at huge danger. So why don't we engage with that issue in a loving, Christ-centred way instead of misappropriate verses, yank them out of context, ignore scholarship and use them as weapons on wonderful people in our churches or who want to join our churches who happen to be gay. Mm. It's bonkers. It's not a good use of scripture. It's a superficial and immature use of scripture. Scripture. Uh, there was a, an article written about this um, video that we've just released last week in a Christian magazine, and it said it all out, and it was brilliant. But it's one of those magazines that always feels like, well, we put this case, so we've got to put the other side. And somebody with a PhD said, well, we all know all this stuff, and Steve Chalk's ideas are utterly stupid. Well. That's fine, but tell us why. Hmm. Tell us why they're stupid. Step up. Let's have a, a, a discussion. Let's have a debate about this. Hmm. We have to have the discussion. I can't hide by saying, I don't want to say someone else's ideas are stupid. Let's discuss with the church and let's do it with grace. In the light of that, then, I wonder if I could put to you some of the conservative ob objections to your argument. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, for example, some people say that in the Romans passages, because Paul refers to both men and women giving up what he describes natural relations for that mm. which is contrary to nature and being consumed with passion for one another, it can't simply be a reference to kind of the exploitative practice of wealthy Roman men of having small boys which they sexually abused or women because mm. it's talking about lesbians as well mm. as gays. And mm. so, therefore... Paul, they would say Paul is condemning not just the kind of orgiastic rape and sexual abuse mm. that you refer to, but also presumably ordinary mutual consenting adult relationships between two women or two men as well. Mm. But uh, of course, uh, and, and in as far as that argument goes, I completely agree with it. But you see, it's, it's, um, it's an argument of an ignorance that fails to take on board that we know from the artwork in Pompeii, from the sex toys recovered from Pompeii and Herculaneum, from the writings of classical Greek scholars, uh, way before we knew about what's going on in Pompeii, that women were also engaged in, in exactly this. 2,000 years, I think I say this in the video actually, 2,000 years before contraceptives, if you could have sex with a slave 
who'd been castrated. So he still had his penis, um, but had, had his testicles removed. It was a wonderful way of enjoying sex without the risk of becoming pregnant. And we know from Roman scholars writing at the time, even Christian scholars writing at the time, that this is what was going on. So, you'll forgive me for saying that, you know, I, I just want to say to these guys, read a bit more. Mm. I'll try you one more then. Uh, 1 Corinthians, um, there's these two words, um, malakoi and arsenotokoi. Mm. My ancient Greek is not mm. excellent. Um uh, which is part of the list of what Paul talks about. Um, and and some commentators or scholars would argue that uh, the the two words cover both the active and the passive partners in gay sex. So again, it's not purely condemning the exploitative men who are penetrating younger yeah. boys, but also the receivers who are, of course, in this context only, would be victims. Yeah. So Paul wouldn't condemn those who are victims, yeah. but he must therefore be, be saying you can't yeah. have gay sex even if you're in a mutual yeah. relationship. Well, my, my, my first response is... Uh, you know, the ch- wouldn't it be wonderful if the Church Times promoted um, a, a debate, a symposium, an opportunity for those scholars who genuinely believe that to come and put that view forward? Do you know, let's get one or two uh, linguists from Oxford and Cambridge outside of evangelicalism. Let's get some scholars who understand uh, Roman culture, historians. Let's get uh, some archaeologists who can talk to us about the art and the sex toys we found, etc., etc., and uh, let's get some classical scholars that can talk to us about the poetry and the philosophy of the day, and have that discussion. Uh, let's have that discussion together. For this moment, uh, let me say that the problem with that, you you know, you you start with the case you want to prove and then you're blind to absolutely everything. It is clear, even to someone who cannot read Greek, um, that these two lists are lists of exploitative people. It's not about people who are having things done to them. The lists are lists of exploiters, slave traders, liars, um, cheats. Um, adulterers, etc., etc. These are people who exploit and abuse and use other people. And that fits directly in line with what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1. Let's be more serious about the Bible than we have been. You talk about um, this this lack of intellectualism among evangelicals. You say they're falling behind in scholarship. Mm. But, I mean... I'm not an expert on this topic whatsoever, but it took me maybe a 10-minute Google to find plenty of articles written by conservatives who, who are engaging with the, the debauched Roman hypersexualized culture and are trying to wrestle and interpret these passages in that way. Do you think your criticism is still fair? Yes, I do, because I, I, um, I've been trying to... Um, do you know, I'm not, I'm not the greatest mind around these things. I'm a working pastor of, of a large church in, in uh, central London and also lead uh, Oasis which is a housing and educational Christian charity and we employ five and a half thousand people. Most of my life is taken up with management issues, is taken up with um, issues of working with families, is taken up with getting on with the job. I'm not a professional academic at all 
But I do know this, that I've been in enough debates with um, um, uh, some scholars to know that they're, they tell you black is white and, and throw in the occasional uh, Greek text. Let's sit down and have a joined up conversation. Uh, anybody can write a blog, can't they? Uh, a, a piece of work. And my fear is that very often um, we start with the end we want to achieve and then fill in it, it all in that way. Uh, by the way, when you did your research around this, I'm sure you didn't do this, but it wouldn't it be fascinating to do a, a piece of research around all the theology of the Dutch Reformed Church uh, that backed a reading of scripture to support apartheid. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't it be wonderful to, uh, to, to well, well it wouldn't be wonderful, it'd be terrible to dig into the theology of the white churches, I'm a Baptist minister, um, the Southern Baptist uh, congregations, they're, they're giant universities with PhDs after PhD who backed a theology that denied the vote uh, to black people in America. So the fact that someone can con con concoct an academic paper around something doesn't prove their point. Uh, I ought to lift this out of um, this point to what I think is a higher point. I, I said to someone the other evening, I, I believe this and uh, to my core, and I believe it's a deep point of theology, not a shallow point. You do not have to be a master of Hebrew and Greek texts. And of course, these are developing sciences all the time. So today's master is left behind by the developments of the next five years. Um, it's always changing, isn't it? But you don't need to be a, a master of Greek or Hebrew or Akkadian or anything else to know that the central core of the Bible's message is God is love. Love isn't an aspect of God's character. It is who God is. God is love. And all other aspects of his character his wisdom, his judgment, etc., etc., his anger, whatever we might talk about, need to be seen, so said Karl Barth, actually, in the light of God's love, dimensions of his love. And he said, once you start talking about um, God's anger or God's judgment or God's justice, outside it being, them being simply dimensions of God's love, you soon go wrong and end up in huge error and normally weaponize passages of the Bible against others that were actually never meant uh, to be used that way. So, if God is love, then any doctrine, any theology, any policy that comes from a church that doesn't echo that love cannot be right the policies that churches have adopted towards gay people have crippled them, have, have stressed them, have caused anxiety, have caused depression, have caused, as I'm sure you know, a huge rate of self-harm and an increase in suicide. Gay people who come to this church just the other night we had a safe space for people to tell their stories. 
And as you listen to the way that people have been abused in evangelical churches, as well as in other places, you can only weep. You can only weep. People who've had conversion therapy inflicted on them. I'm really pleased that the Anglican community is moving towards a place where it's going to sign that this is an evil because it is an evil. It takes people's lives. How can any of this square up with a God who is love? And what does a God who is love have to say to people who weaponize scripture and use it to destroy others? And just lastly then, you talked about how churches such as um, the Dutch Reformed Church in Africa and even the Southern Baptist in America can now look back and say, yes, we were wrong. Apartheid, slavery were, were grotesque evils and sins and we were wrong to defend them. Is your sense that the evangelical church is moving in another direction, in that same direction? And in maybe in our lifetimes, maybe later, it will be the evangelical consensus to look back and say the way we use the Bible to justify um, what you talk about, the oppression, uh, the abuse, the stress uh, of LGBT people is, a, is was wrong. I, I think it's an exactly parallel thing. The interesting thing is Oasis works in South Africa and in America. In fact, I'm going to America uh, next week. And, and though the evil of racism has been officially um, defeated, um, although black people are no longer in slavery. Um, they do have the vote, although South Africa is the rainbow nation. In actual fact, there's a lurking legacy of racism, as I'm sure you know, left in both countries. It takes a long time to get this evil stuff out of a system. And people will still quote the Bible to defend racism, as we have seen in America over this last year. So I think this is a, is a long, long battle. Actually, to tell you the truth, I, I feel very optimistic. I think the war is won, um, but the question is, how long will the skirmish go on? And how many casualties will, will there be of this skirmish? Uh, my prayer is that the church will rise up and its leaders, archbishops and bishops will have the courage not to kick the can down the road again for someone else to grapple with in years to come, but have the courage to deal with this issue now. Uh, I want to say in closing that Oasis works in some countries that are deeply homophobic. Um, I'm half Indian by the way and so the first country we worked in outside the UK is India where I'm going next week and um, uh, we work in Uganda uh, for instance um, and when I published the document that said where I stand even though I said this is my view and we want we want an open discussion we don't want to be um, as condemning of those with different, I don't want to be as condemning of those with a different view to mine as they are of me. I want an open and honest debate. But even that, it caused huge ructions in, uh, in Oasis around the world. And um, in actual fact, as ever, people threaten to leave, um, etc. The bully will always threaten you. So my message to 
the Archbishop and to the bishops of this country is the bully will always threaten you. The kicking the can down the road, well, you get nowhere. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website www.churchtimes.co.uk If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening. Thank you.